I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Titus as I hope to begin studying through this short but powerfully instructive book over the next few weeks. It's been several years since we studied through this book together, and the face of our congregation has changed so much since then. I think that even if you were here for that series through Titus, I suppose it was probably 10 years ago that we considered this book in its entirety. It'll be fresh to you, and it will be very instructive. As we turn to the book of Titus, chapter 1, our message today is entitled Introduction to Titus, and will be a consideration of the first four verses of Titus chapter 1. We'll begin by reading and then introduce these thoughts to you. Paul writes in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and to the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. As we begin introducing this book to you today, there are several things that we want to say about it up front, details about the context of it, who is writing, who is being written to, why is this author writing this epistle or this letter to this particular individual, and what is the substance of that which he writes. We just say up front that as we observe from these first few verses, the book of Titus gets its name not from its author, but from the recipient. And this is the case with most Pauline epistles. You notice that Paul writes most of the writings in the New Testament as far as the bulk of titles, but there's not a book that is the book of Paul. Now we find quite a different story with the Apostle Peter. There's First and Second Peter that are the two general epistles written by Peter. You have the books of First, Second, and Third John, which are written by John. You have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which bear the name of the author, and you have the book of Jude, which is, as you know, written by Jude, the servant of the Lord, and we believe the half-brother of the Lord. Titus, however, was not written by Titus, but it was written by the apostle Paul to a yoke fellow in the ministry, a dear companion of his, a man named Titus. Now, as we talk about Titus and we introduce him to you today, this is not the same Titus that was the general who was the son of the emperor who besieged Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Paul didn't ever write an epistle to General Titus, but this Titus is a Gentile, a preacher of the gospel, a yoke fellow of the apostle Paul, and as we see in this introduction, his son after the common faith. This is one of Paul's many apprentices. We find this phrase, father or son, after the common faith in Scripture, and it is what we would refer today as a father and a son in the ministry. Now, as we look at the portion of Scripture that we consider next week, which will be Paul's writings about the bishop and the responsibility, the qualifications of a pastor, we find insight into how God would have men raised up to preach. There were no seminaries or colleges for the instruction of preachers in the first century, a young preacher learned by studying with an old preacher or an older minister of the gospel. Every church is to be a seminary and the pastor is to be the professor or the dean. He is to teach and instruct the younger ministers that are raised up under his care, under his pastoral watch care. And so Paul writes to Titus, who is his son in the ministries, we would say today, or as Paul wrote here, his son after the common faith. Paul had no biological children. He was a man that history reports was unmarried, and so because of that, he had no children, but he had many sons after the common faith. He had many sons in the ministry. No biological children, but many sons in the ministry. Paul writes to Titus, his son in the ministry, one of his yoke fellows, 
And this man, Titus, is a Gentile. Now, there's a note about him in one of Paul's writings. You know that Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek, and well into Timothy's adulthood, he was circumcised. He was raised as a Greek, according to his father, but his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures as a young, uh, as a young man at a young age. And so Timothy was actually circumcised so the Jews would receive him as he began his ministry because it would have been a hurdle or a stumbling block. But Timothy would not. He would, excuse me, but Titus would not. Titus was not, and he could not be compelled to do that. He was a Gentile. Now, he's a man that is sent to, much like Paul, the Gentiles. And he would constitute churches among Gentiles. Now, if you're not a Bible reader and you're new to that concept, in Scripture you basically have two groups of people. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. Gentiles are everyone who is not a Jew. So we have a church here today that is comprised probably exclusively of Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish ethnicity. In our live stream two weeks ago, we talked about the promises that God gave Abraham. Abraham's seed, those who came from him, Isaac and Jacob, those were the Jews, the Hebrews, they were the Israelites. Everyone who was not an Israelite was a Gentile, and so we are all Gentiles. The Gentiles were known as the nations. They were known as the heathen. Many times they were pagans. And in the book of Acts, we read that in chapter 17 that God did wink at the millennia. He turned a blind eye, if you will, to borrow another metaphor or figure of speech. He turned a blind eye to the paganism of the Gentile nations, but he calls upon all men everywhere to repent now. And so whether you're Jew or Gentile, God calls upon you to turn from your iniquity. He, turns, he calls upon you to turn from your sin. There's no more time when God winks at the idolatry of Gentile peoples. Titus is a Gentile. He was a preacher of the gospel, and it's believed that this epistle was written about 62 A.D., or about the time that Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy, another epistle that is written to one of Paul's sons in the ministry. Now, this is, as such, being written to a preacher, one of the pastoral epistles. Now, many of these epistles that Paul wrote, you could say, were written from a pastor's perspective. Paul pastored the church at Corinth for a year and a half. He founded that church and he pastored them. But it's not considered a pastoral epistle. Pastoral epistles are written to pastors. And they're written with advice from a minister of the gospel to another minister of the gospel. And so we read in these pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, advice that God would have for ministers, for pastors, what they ought to teach their congregations, what their congregations need, what we need to preach from the pulpits of God's house, what God would have his children to be instructed in. Now, it's kind of interesting to know because there are a lot of folks in the world today who might want to hear some things that are not found in these pastoral epistles. And there are people in the world that if what we find in these pastoral epistles were preached to them, they might be bored about hearing, bored and hearing some of the things that Paul would instruct this man of God to teach. I'll give you a story of that. A few years ago, it was more than a few years ago now, more like a decade ago, I was speaking on the way God's Word commands ministers to be trained and ordained. And ministers have this sixth sense when we know if someone is disgruntled before they tell us that they are disgruntled. And, and I think that's the Holy Spirit enabling us to have insight into the flock that he's called us to be overseers among. But this person made it rather easy. As we were talking about this and speaking about this, I happened to glance at them right when they sighed, turned to the side, rolled their eyes, and shook their head. Well, it didn't take any sort of special Holy Spirit insight to know that that person was disgruntled with church atmosphere here. And it wasn't very long after that 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 person ceased to be here as a, as a congregant. Their family left, and we missed them very much. But they were dissatisfied, and so they went somewhere else. 
Twice in my ministry here, someone has rolled their eyes when I was preaching on something that's not insulting. It was innocent. I wasn't being stupid, which I can understand sometimes you're rolling your eyes when I make stupid remarks. But I was simply preaching the text, and they sighed and rolled their eyes. And not long after that, they went to another congregation. Those are, maybe you could say, more than Holy Spirit insights into someone being unsatisfied in church when you sigh and roll your eyes during the pastor's feeble attempts at sharing the word. There's some people who might not want to hear some of the things that Paul would instruct to first or to Timothy and Titus and first and second Timothy and Titus, but mark my word, if God has written about it, if he had men of God write about it in his word, he wants you to know this. Now, why would God want us to know about how to raise up a minister or warnings against unsound teachers, whether they be Christians or Jews or pagans, as we'll read in subsequent passages from this book of Titus? Those are some of the most destructive individuals in the world today as it relates to what God's people understand about him. False teachers are real and Ministers of the gospel are real, and so we need to be equipped in all of these matters. Now, the book of Titus is one that is, at times, very, very doctrinal. In fact, today's message, the bulk of our time together, will be spent examining some of the theology of salvation that dates back even to before the foundation of the world. But we also find where doctrine and practice intersect, which you might refer to as Practical Godliness. And so this is a book that is very doctrinal and also very practical. For instance, in the book of Titus chapter 2, we read, Speak thou the things which become, make beautiful, sound doctrine. And then the remainder of this portion of Titus chapter 2 is all about the way that we live. In other words, we ought to present sound, fundamental theology in such a way that it's appealing and attractive so that God's children will then want to live in a way that glorifies him and pleases him. My theology ought to affect my lifestyle. And we find that intersected in the book of Titus, sound theology merging with, intersecting, if you will, practical godliness, the way that we ought to live in the world. Again, Paul writes to encourage Titus, this pastor who is younger than him. We don't know his age, but we know he is younger than him, less experienced than him, and certainly not an apostle, in what he ought to teach, what he ought to preach, what he ought to instruct those that are under his pastoral care. Now, Titus at this point in his ministry has been left on an island called Crete. The culture of Crete will come into some of the messages in this series. We are not divorced <clears throat> from our culture. But the culture around us, wherever we are, plays a crucial role in our needs, in our own individual sin issues and the things that we deal with, and as such, in what a gospel minister ought to be teaching. There are some things that Americans need to hear that maybe Kenyans don't need to hear so much. And if we are worth our salt as preachers, we'll be stepping on American toes because Americans need to hear certain things. The culture of Crete would work itself into Paul's writings as he instructs this man how to equip Cretans for discipleship. He has left him here on Crete to set in order things that are wanting, as you notice in verse 5, and ordain elders in every city. He's planting churches. He's raising up ministers of the gospel. He is ordaining men to preach. He's teaching them, and he's leaving them in these respective cities to pastor these churches that he has planted. The island of Crete is the largest of the Greek islands. Now, this is interesting I would love to travel and see Greece. Last night, when all the children went to bed, one of the gifts that Rachel got the boys was an Oculus Quest. If you know what that is, it's a virtual reality headset. It's the closest thing that I have ever seen to a Star Trek holodeck. Any of you know what a Star Trek holodeck is? You go into a room in Star Trek, and it becomes another place based upon holographic projections. I'm sorry none of you are nerds. 
you would enjoy life much better if you knew what I was talking about. How many of you have seen The Matrix? You know, they put something, all right, more of you have seen The Matrix. You put something in the back of your head and suddenly you're transported somewhere else to an alternate reality. Well, an Oculus Quest is a headset. Last night, I spent about five minutes after the kids went to bed and I got to play with a cool toy on a beach in Greece. And I got to see the sea there and the, the first thing I thought was how much nicer our beaches are. In, in the southeast on the Gulf of Mexico. We have some beautiful beaches. But I got to look at the cliffs as they come up to the beach and the surf as it crashed, and there are signs there that have writing in Greek, and I was trying to figure out what was, what was written there in the Greek language. It would be great to appear and to experience life on this Greek island Crete, what a wonderful experience it would be to eat their food and smell their aromas and to hear their language and experience their culture. Well, that's exactly where Titus has been left, on an island, the largest of the Greek islands, an island named Crete. It's 180 miles long. It's, I believe, the 88th largest island in the world. At its widest, it is 37 miles. Some sources have said 35 miles. And on average, it's about 20 miles wide. And so it's this long, narrow island. It had its own culture, though it was a Greek island. It was affected by the Greeks, but it was at the same time affected by its own native culture. They had their own language. They had their own culture, their own religions, their own personality, just like we do in our country today. Our country has its own personality. The South has its own personality. Alabama has its own personality. And North Alabama has its own personality because we're a land full of cultures and people and dialects, diets. Crete was that way. Titus has the responsibility of training men, preaching, constituting churches, and as he goes as a gospel minister, he is commanded to call men and women to repentance. And that's a very common theme early in the book of Titus. Now we begin reading in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and to the acknowledging and the acknowledging of truth, which is after godliness. First of all, Paul identifies himself the identity of the writer here as Paul, but he doesn't merely identify himself as an apostle, but how does he identify himself here in verse 1? As a servant of God. Now there are times that he would only identify himself as a servant of God or a servant of Jesus Christ, and there are times that he lists his office of an apostle. We love offices and titles and positions of authority in the world, and men vie for that. We put our titles in our signatures and our names. If you have an impressive degree, it might find itself as a part of your signature. If you're a pastor, you might sign an email or a letter, pastor, so-and-so, so-and-so, comma, pastor of the church that the person might, might be the pastor of. If a person belongs to the staff of a university or a college, you'll be certain that those credentials would find themselves in the man's signature. How does Paul identify himself to this beloved son in the ministry? Above all things, before all things, even titles that we would find to be authoritative, such as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he identifies himself as a servant of God. The word servant here is synonymous with one and the same with the word slave. And so when Paul says that he is a servant of God, he means that Jesus Christ is his master in the same way that a servant belonged to a master. And we live in an America that is completely inundated with cancel culture and things such as servants and masters and slavery are very taboo to speak about because of the shameful history of slavery in the United States. But please understand, it is no shame to be a slave of the master named Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, that is the greatest 
title and compliment that anyone would ever receive, the greatest position that anyone could ever occupy in the world, to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the greatest honor that you and I could have to belong to him, him being our master, we being his servants. And so Paul says that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. As we think about servants here, there's a couple of points that I want to give you. First of all, as a servant of Jesus Christ, as a servant of God, God is your master. We live in a day where hedonism, though we don't realize it's what it is, hedonism was a Greek philosophy in Paul's day. If it feels good, do it. Whatever's pleasing to the flesh, do it. Pleasure is the greatest good that any of us could ever know. Hedonism has completely permeated our culture. We're a very hedonistic society. And so if it feels good to you, you should do it. If it doesn't hurt anyone else. But that isn't what Scripture presents to us as good. And truth be told, most of the problems that we experience in this life come from that self-centered mentality that is so, so very much a part of the American perspective. To do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good. The servant of Christ belongs to Christ, and as such, Christ is his master. He is your Lord. He tells you what to do. He tells you what not to do, and this is fitting, and this is good. After all, he is the king of all creation. Should we not obey the king? Absolutely we should. He is the creator, he is the Lord, and he is the judge. But the child of God belongs to him in a very special sense. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 23, ye are bought with a price. Now what is that price by which ye are bought? What has been paid for you? You have been purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died for you upon the cross of Calvary, he died to buy you if you belong to him. He redeemed you from your former master that was sin and wickedness, Satan. You deserved wrath because of sin, and yet Jesus has died for you, buying you back from that so that you should serve a new master. You were sold under slavery, as we read. You were conceived under the law, and Jesus kept the law to a jot and a tittle, and he saved you from your sins. He did this by His grace. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your choices. You're not saved by your decisions because you were conceived as a slave under the master of sin. But Jesus, when you were yet without strength, in due time Christ has died for the ungodly. He has saved you from your sins. He bought you. You have been saved, redeemed not with corruptible things, as 1 Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ. You're bought with the price. Be not ye the servants of men. Now, whether it's in a sinful sense or any other sense, we belong to Christ. We're not to be subject to any power in the world. Now, we are subject to kings and magistrates and people in authority. We understand that. But we're not to be subject to substance. We're not to be subject to vice or sin or any other thing because we are the subjects of Christ. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, how we really need to regain this perspective of servanthood to Christ, our Lord in American Christianity. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. And the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Paul bases his, you notice his according to, his apostleship on two great realities. First of all, the faith of God's elect, according to or in accord with the faith of God's elect. And number two, these great realities, these great truths that he summarizes by this statement, godliness. 
He is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. The first thing that we want to talk about as we consider these great proofs of Paul's authority and reality is the faith of God's elect. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to lose my coat because after COVID, I have been running on overheated conditions, and I don't know what that's about, but Rachel and I have noticed that it can be 66 in the house and we're blazing and burning up. Now, my dad was a very animated preacher, and whenever he would get in a big way in his sermons, he would begin to sweat profusely. And the first thing he would do is take off his coat. The next thing he would do is roll up his sleeves. The next thing, the tie came down and the shirt came unbuttoned. And he really went to work. Now, I don't intend to do any of that today. But I am warm, so I'm going to take my coat off if that's all right with you. There are some preachers that wouldn't even baptize anybody without a coat on. I'm not one of those preachers. Paul is an apostle according to two things. Number one, the faith of God's elect. And number two, the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Now, first of all, this word elect. As American believers, this is a neglected point of doctrine today. But we find this word elect, and it's a word that simply means chosen, used often in God's word. Elect. Now, we understand what the word elect means. We just a couple of months ago had an election in our country, and as such, we elected our local and our state and our national figures, our elected officials. To elect, then, means to choose. We had signs all around the community, elect so-and-so, elect so-and-so, whether it be a local office or a national office. When Paul uses the word elect here, he has reference to God's choice of a people to salvation before the foundation of the world. This word here is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. He said the tribulation of the days of the destruction of Jerusalem, except for the elect's sake, those days would be longer. Those sufferings were shortened for the elect's sake. He says in Matthew 24 that there will be false Christs that arise after that, in our day even. And if it be possible, they will deceive the very elect. Jesus describes a group of people named the elect. That sermon is recorded with that language in the book of Matthew, also in the book of Mark. And so Mark uses the terminology, the elect. In the book of Luke, you find in Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge. And we read, shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him day and night? Jesus talks about the elect in the parable of the unjust judge. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, Peter says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Peter uses the word elect. In the book of 2 John, verse 1, John writes as the elder unto the elect lady and her children. Over and over and over, in the New Testament, we find this term, elect. And here we find it in the book of Titus chapter 1. According to the faith of God's elect, Paul is an apostle. Probably the most detailed and concise description of election is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes of things that are blessings that God purposed even before the world began. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now that is a sermon in and of itself that could take hours of explanation, but simply put, before the world began, child of God, listen to me. Before the world began, God the Father chose you in his Son to be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, so many times people present election and the sister companion doctrine of that predestination in a terrifying light. But this isn't a scary doctrine. It's a God-glorifying, comforting doctrine. Why? If I know God and I love Him, then before the world began, He chose me and He predestinated me to be conformed to the image of His Son. He set my destiny. When this world ends, my destiny has been set by Him from before the world began. And there is absolutely nothing that can take me from His hand because He has purposed it to be. Paul writes, according to the faith of God's elect... And we'll say more of that in a moment. The faith of God's elect. All of God's chosen, all of God's elect, are given faith at the new birth. Every single heir of promise shall know him. Mental disability does not stop one of God's children from knowing Him. An untimely death does not stop one of God's children from knowing Him. Every single heir of promise shall know Him from the least to the greatest. And I love to liken that intimate heart knowledge of God with the concept of faith. I believe they're one and the same. We all know him. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 describes faith as a gift that is given at salvation. Hebrews 11.1 1 describes it as an evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. Hebrews 12.2 says that faith is authored and finished in us by Christ. Where do you have faith? You have it because Christ has authored it in you. Galatians 5.22 describes it as a fruit of the Spirit. If you have a tree and it is growing fruit, the fruit is the fruit, the byproduct, the product of that tree. The Holy Spirit within us produces that fruit. In other words, if you have faith, it is of Him in you the way an apple is of an apple tree or an acorn is of an oak tree. It is the fruit of the Spirit. According to 1 Peter 1.21, by him we do believe in God. And lastly, Acts 13.48, we read that when the Gentiles heard the word of God, they rejoiced, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What enabled their belief? Ordination to eternal life. This is the faith of God's elect. God gives his elect faith. Paul is an apostle according to this, in accord with this, and also the truth which is after godliness. Now, these are two separate things. He is an apostle in accord with truth which is after godliness, after translating from the same word as the word according, the word in. In hope of eternal life, Paul says in verse 2, let's continue reading, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. As we think about election, it's impossible not to think about something that took place before the foundation of the world. And I would give you an encouraging study just on your own time. Take a concordance or go to an online Bible dictionary and look up the words foundation and world. Or look up the word world began and consider and learn from Scripture what little we know about what took place before the foundation of the world, before God created in the beginning of time, we know very little about it. We know everything that is physical, and even time itself was created in the beginning of time. That's why we call it the beginning of time. Before Genesis 1-1, there was no time. 
There was no space. There was no matter. There was only God. Only God existed. We know very little about this. We believe that he created the angels in creation week. We have no specific starting point for them in scripture, but we do know without a shadow of a doubt that everything physical was made in the book of Genesis chapter 1. What happened before Genesis 1-1? It's a mystery for the ages. The only thing that we do know is that before the world was created, God loved you and that he covenanted within himself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save you. And we refer to this as the covenant of grace. Notice this, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. What did we read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4? According as he has chosen us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. It's amazing that we have heard this truth. We, we cut our teeth on this truth. There are people in the world that are starving for this idea, for this doctrine from Scripture, because their ministry has never taught them this. They don't know these great truths. I've seen videos of conferences here or there, social media, you get a little clip or a sound bite of a conference, and there are times when these passages are read and People are so amazed by that that they begin to clap. They begin to praise. They begin to worship. And to us, because we know them so well, they lose some of their marvel to us. May we ever be ecstatic at the concept of God choosing you before the world began. Think about that. The God who chose to create the universe by speaking it into existence saw you not only as a collective. No, he saw you as an individual. And he said, I love this individual. I will save this individual. I will send my son into the world to die for that individual. I will, spend, I will send my spirit into his heart or her heart, crying, Abba, Father. This individual will come to know me through the new birth, through God's grace. I will give them faith. I will teach them. I will walk with them, I will guide them, I will protect them, I will shepherd them, I will chasten them, I will never leave them nor forsake them. And they will be with me in glory for all of eternity. Why? Because before the world began, God loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, with loving kindness has he drawn you. That is truly marvelous. That is to say, something that ought to cause us to be full of marvel. What a mystery is it that God loved a wretched sinner such as myself so much that he would become flesh and go to the cross and suffer and bleed and die to save me from my sins when I was dead in trespasses and in sins, as Ephesians 2.1 says. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now I want to comment on this word hope for a moment, because when we read this word hope, or we tell people that we have a hope in Christ, so often they misunderstand. I even saw it today on social media in one of the groups that I'm in. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have made the right decision, joined the right group of people, brought it into being that you will go to heaven when you die? Now I'm going to tell you that there is a biblical doctrine of assurance. And we ought to be assured of our salvation. But when Scripture speaks about salvation, it uses sometimes the word no, but it often uses the word hope. Hope is not a weak word. Hope is not a wish. Hope is not a flimsy concept in Scripture. 
It is an earnest expectation of something that you expect to receive. Now, the best comparison that I can give you, we often say, I hope for X, Y, Z, and I've used this example many times. You and I, and I would encourage you not to do this, but if you were to come into possession of a lottery ticket, boy, I hope I've got the winning numbers. Now, do you have any expectation that you're going to win that lottery? No. But you say, well, I hope that I'll win that lottery. You've got a better chance of being struck by lightning or bit by a shark than you do winning the lottery. I win $2 every time I drive past a gas station that sells lotto tickets. How's that? Because I keep that $2 in my pocket. I'm wasting my money on lottery tickets. People say, I hope I win the lottery. And they're not using the word hope the way the Bible uses the word hope. Let me tell you the way the Bible uses the word hope. When you have purchased tickets to maybe a vacation, somewhere you're going, something you're going to do, you've got great assurances that it's going to come to pass, that yearning in your heart and that certainty that that is what you are going to do, Lord willing, that is more akin to the biblical concept of hope. I yearn for eternal life. I look forward to eternal life. Don't you look forward to a vacation? I think I look forward. I enjoy looking forward to a vacation more than I enjoy the vacation. You just look forward to it. You can't wait for it. You anticipate it. You think about all the things you're going to do when you get there. I love to think about going on vacation. Rachel loves to go on vacation. And in that we really fit together well because she puts it into practice when I would just look at pictures online. But when you have that earnest expectation, you intend, you expect, you yearn for, and you long for. That is the doctrine of biblical hope. It is a strong concept. How so? Romans chapter 8 says that we are saved in our moments of affliction by hope. We are saved by hope. Does that mean we go to heaven by hope? No. In our moments of suffering, we are delivered from the despair of sorrow in suffering through simply hoping, through the hope, the anticipation of a world that we will exist in without all of these troubles and problems. That is biblical hope. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. We anticipate eternal life, that is to say, in this passage, the deliverance from this world into eternity. We know that we are possessors of eternal life through the new birth. But here Paul shifts his focus to the full realization of eternal life, being delivered from this world, which God, and we've saved this phrase for last, God which cannot lie, promised before the world began. I want to share with you now a few thoughts on the faithfulness of God. Why do you have this great anticipation of deliverance when you leave this world? Why can we hope? Why can we hope for a day of deliverance? Entering eternal glory with our Savior Christ in a world with no sin, no iniquity, no enemies, no Satan, no devils. Because God promised it before the world began... And God can not lie. Now this is interesting in that it brings us to one of the few things in Scripture that God cannot do. This is a very limited category of behavior. God is omnipotent. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth as we read in Revelation. What does the word omnipotent mean? Omni-all potent power. Omnipotent. Omnipotent. All power. God can do whatever God wills to do. And he works his will among the army of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? I try to fit that verse into every sermon. That in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hope you noticed. This is one of the few things that God cannot do. God cannot do. God cannot lie. According to the Psalms, God cannot swear by one greater than himself. Because there is none greater than himself by which to swear. 
God cannot swear by one greater than himself. God cannot violate his nature, his holiness. Cannot, will not. It would be contrary to his nature. And by nature, God is immutable. The word immutable meaning unchanging, mute, being a root word for mutant and mutation. God is immutable, not able to change. God does not change. I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3. I want to share with you the book of Lamentations chapter 3 as we think about the faithfulness of God. In hope of eternal life, which God, which cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world, before the world began. Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in a time of national judgment and siege. There are three sieges of Jerusalem. Israel is being judged for their iniquities. Judah is being judged for their iniquities. And they're being carried away into captivity in Babylon. They're under God's judgment. And Jeremiah, the minister of God, is lamenting that. And so, hence the title, Lamentations. And yet, in the midst of all of these poems of suffering and sorrow, we find this ray of hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He doesn't always do what you want. He doesn't always say yes to prayer, but he never lets you down. He's always with you. And even in the moments of suffering and sorrow in this world, if you're suffered by him to go through things such as that, he is with you in the trial, strengthening you, loving you, caring for you, enabling you, and eventually he will one day deliver you. He is faithful. He cannot lie. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And what does that statement mean? It's an unusual expression. God is so immutable, so faithful, so reliable, that if all of the human beings in this world deny him and reject his truth, all of the unbelief in the world does not change one iota of his nature, of his being, of his will, or of his truth. He abideth faithful. Present tense word. He is ever faithful. He never changes. And according to Titus chapter 1, our hope of salvation is built upon the faithfulness of God. As Lamentations 3 says, it is of his mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised... Before the world began, and as he promised it, he will also bring it to pass. Because he purposed it, and because he is omnipotent, and he is faithful. This is why I can go to bed at night and not worry about my salvation. Because it is not by what I've done, but it's according to his faithfulness. I am not always a faithful person. None of us are. And some level in your heart, you fail. And yet God is always faithful. Verses 3 and 4. I intended to spend the majority of time on verses 1 and 2 of these first four verses of the book of Titus. We come to preaching and the purpose of it, one preacher writing to another preacher, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. What 
is the purpose of preaching in all of this? Preaching does not establish God's word or his purposes even in salvation. God's purposes shall ripen fast because he is God. Rather, preaching manifests his purposes. Notice that. He has manifested his word through preaching. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says that Christ has brought life and immortality to light. He's brought life and immortality and that he has brought that life and immortality to light through preaching. Preaching manifests the salvific work of Christ. He has in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. In other words... God has promised salvation before the world began. He has brought it to pass. There is no changing it. There is no losing it. We cannot affect it. But we do manifest the reality of it as we preach God's word. We manifest as his preachers what God has himself done by himself, through himself, God saves his children and we declare his finished work. He has committed this preaching to us. He has placed it in our care. It is a solemn and a terrifying responsibility. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul would say to the Thessalonians that he puts a salutation at the end or the beginning of each of his epistles, and that salutation is usually some variation of grace to you, grace and peace to you. Interestingly enough, there are three times in Paul's epistles that he includes an additional word. It's when he writes to his minister friends, and that word that he includes is mercy, because gospel ministers need mercy. Paul writes to him, and he bases this letter. He opens up. He comes out swinging with a double-barreled dose of God's sovereignty and salvation. I pray that you have enjoyed this study of Titus chapter 1. May we be the stewards of this truth who manifest it to his children. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for revealing these truths to us through your word. We know, Father, that these are things that were promised before the world began but have been manifested in our day, in our lives, through the proclamation of your word. We thank you, Lord, for giving me the strength to share this word with your people today. We pray for all of your ministers the world over, that they would have more and more insight into your truth. We know that the truth never changes because it's as eternal as you are, and you are faithful. But, Lord, we pray that we would understand more of it and faithfully present what we know about it. Help us to manifest your truth to your children. Help this place to be a group that, an organization that presents your truth to the world around us. Help others to come into this place and hear your truth and to love it, to rejoice in it, and to rest and hope in the finished work of your son Jesus. Forgive us of our many sins, we pray in his name, and we say amen.